about so let's say <laughs> tomorrow Karen and I decide we're going to take a trip to Rome and we go go to the Vatican and uh, Pope Benedict is celebrating the Eucharist. We are not allowed to partake in that Eucharist, right? Yes and no. In Vatican II, there was an area that made Anglicanism gray, and it gave special acknowledgement to Anglicans. Um, and there was a policy among many bishops and priests that we could receive if we asked for permission and did not have access to our own sacraments. Okay? Um, and, however, that has really fallen at the wayside lately. Um, what I tell people is, look, um, if I go to someone else's house, um, it's, I don't have to like their rules. And here's an example I use. In Newfoundland, it's customary to take off your shoes when you enter someone's house. I hate taking off my shoes. I don't have a problem with odor. I just don't like being shoeless, okay? Um, I don't know. It's probably because I was fat for so much of my life and I feel like the shoe gives me some stature. I don't know what weird psychological reasons I have. All I know is I don't like taking off my shoes. I actually really don't like it, okay? So you can decide psychologically what that means, all right? When I go in the Bishop Harvey's house, do you think I remove my shoes? Yes. Yes. Why? Because it's his house. I was in Maine last year and was staying in Booth Bay Harbor. And I forget why. We stayed over, I think it was the time my mother and sister went up and got into a car accident. So we didn't expect to be up there on a Sunday. So I didn't have, I mean, it is easier for me. I can just take bread and wine with me and consecrate it wherever I am. As long as I have someone with me. Okay. But we didn't. I wasn't going to go to the local Episcopal church. Okay. So I called up the Roman priest and I said to him, I'm an Anglican priest. I'm an Orthodox Anglican priest. I do not have access to my uh, own church. I do not have anything with me to consecrate. I'm coming to Mass. May I receive? And he said, yes, absolutely under those circumstances, you may receive. And I said, um, I'm going to have my collar on, however. And he said, yeah, I don't care. That's fine with me. So I said, okay. <laughs> and so I received. But that's what I think you should do. Now, there's other people that would say they have no right to withhold the body of Christ. And I, don't know, I think it gets sticky. I, you know, when I'm in someone else's house, I follow their rules. In that same example, though, so we're, we happen to be there, we're, we're talking to the Pope, and we say, you know what, you should really come over to Marlboro. And he does. Now, does he, have to, does he go by the same rules? Does he call up Father Michael or Bishop Harvey and say, I'm visiting your church, I don't have access? <laughs> he wouldn't want our access. He wouldn't want access. No, he wouldn't. Um, however, you know, it really depends. You know, officially the position of Rome is that our orders are valid and illicit. So they would say officially... I am a layperson who's pretending to be a priest. Okay? That's the official position. Despite that fact... Uh, what's that? Didn't they invite... Uh, they say you're a layperson? Yes. 
Yes. Even though you were ordained in apostolic succession? Yes. They don't recognize our apostolic succession. They say it's defective. Okay. Because? They did a study and they said it was defective <laughs> uh, under okay. Pope, Pope Leo Thirteenth. All right, that's the. I don't want to get off on this because we're going to talk about this in another time, so I'll give it in the nutshell and then remind me of whatever it was I was going to say. Okay. Okay. Um, that was the official position. Unfortunately for them, unlike, uh, just like Nixon, they didn't burn the evidence. Scholars went into the archives, undid the archives, and what they found was that those who investigated our orders found that they were valid but that the recommendation to Pope Leo XIII was to declare them null and void because if he didn't, he would be recognizing the Catholicity of a church in his own front yard. Um, not some Eastern church way over there, but this church. And what about people like Thomas More who died, you know, and they're going to now validate this? So the Pope, Pope Leo XIII, declared them null and void. Okay, that is still the official position of the church. However, in practice, um, the we I invited the um, bishop of Peoria to come to our deanery meeting. Okay, he came in. Uh, he was right down the street. His cathedral was in the same neighborhood as my church. Roman yeah, the Roman Catholic bishop of Peoria, and he came in came up the stairs into the church. The first thing he did was, well, I greeted him and I kissed his ring and, and so forth. He came up the stairs, came into the church, and he blessed himself with holy water. If I'm a lay person, what's in that dish? Water. Water. Okay. But he blessed himself with it, made the sign of the cross. Then he walked down. We did noonday prayer together. We walked down before he got into the pew, he genuflected to acknowledge the presence of Jesus in the tabernacle. If I'm a lay person, what's in that tabernacle? Bread, Bread with a small b. But he genuflected. Okay. Uh, later on, uh, at the end of the deanery meeting, I asked him to give us all a blessing. He did. Then he turned to Bishop Ackerman and asked for his blessing. If Bishop Ackerman is a layperson, then, you know, he was... A, so, and then also, if in Roman Catholic canon law, if you're a Roman Catholic layman who's married, can you become a priest? No. no. Okay. If Bob's an Anglican and be, is an Anglican priest and he converts to Roman Catholicism. If he was never a priest, and he converts to Roman... Now, we say he was a priest, right? But he converts to Roman Catholicism, and let's say he was married, okay? What is he? He's now a Roman Catholic layman with a wife. But they would allow him to be ordained, okay? So in practice, there, there's a wink and a nod going on there okay so but I, I we will cover that more uh, later for us however in Anglicanism when uh, Michael Bickford who was a Protestant minister for 15 16 years wanted to live out his ordained ministry 
in Anglicanism, did he have to be ordained a deacon and then a priest? Yes, absolutely. We weren't saying that he was or wasn't anything before. We didn't speak to that. What we said is you're, you have to be ordained in Catholic orders. Okay? We didn't say you weren't ordained before or set apart or that God's grace didn't work through you. We just said, look, we know what we know. When Father Terence, who was ordained in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, wanted to live that out in Anglicanism, was he ordained a deacon and then a priest? No. Why? Because he's already a priest of Christ's big C, Holy Catholic Church. He's now serving in this particular communion. Okay? Same thing if Sandra is confirmed in the Roman Catholic Church and comes to, uh, wants to be an Anglican, is she confirmed or received? She's received. If Joan is coming from the Presbyterian Church and was confirmed in the Presbyterian Church, is she confirmed or received? Confirmed, okay, by a bishop. Okay, so you see in, in practice, it's, that's where it is. Okay. That's correct. He has to choose, which is a man-made canon. But he, could, he was a deacon who was married. Right. But what they would say, technically speaking, Orthodox priests cannot marry. An Orthodox married man can become a priest. Do you follow that? Yeah. You have to be married first. But if your wife dies... I mean, I had a friend who was an Orthodox priest. He says... In my house, my wife's in charge. I do everything she tells me. And I said, why? He says, or she'll leave me. And that's it. The well's dry. I mean, he says, she wins every argument because he's a priest. I'll leave you. And then that's it because he wants to be a priest. Okay, dear. <laughs> that's it. So uh, I said, well, that's your problem. But um, yeah, but that's a man-made rule. You, you know, that's a man-made rule. But uh, but Yeah. But that's that's the that's the way it's done. Yeah. It's peculiar. Yeah, it's peculiar. It is definitely particular. Now going back to that example, what if a let's say you have a bishop who is in the apostolic succession, but they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ? Um, you know, are they still God's anointed? Okay. The example I would use is David with Saul. Saul was made king of Israel by God. He was anointed by God and made king by God. Later, he went against God and God's word. Uh, God removed him as king, okay, and said he no longer has authority and so forth, right? All right, so now you've got David, and people are coming to David as God's newly anointed king, right? They're camping outside a cave. Happens, if you read the Bible, it's kind of a funny story. King Saul's in the cave taking a leak on, on the wall. King James Version actually say, he pisseth on the wall. True. It's true. So, all right? And so... Basically, one of David's men go in and they say, 
my gosh, that's King Saul. <laughs> they come out and they tell David, we've literally caught him with his pants down. You could go in there and kill him right now, right? What does David say? Now, this is a guy who's been rejected by God, dethroned by God, who has rejected the covenant with God, and here he is relieving himself, and here's David's chance to take it. What does David say? Why? What does he say specifically? I shall not touch God's anointed. So he still sees him, and the anointing is forever. Now, he may have rejected that, and maybe is no longer deserving, but he probably wasn't deserving in the first place to receive it, right? This is why when we did say to Bishop Shaw, we went to his office, a group of us representing Holy Trinity, we said, we no longer believe that you hold the Catholic faith of God's word. We no longer in good conscience can place ourselves under your authority. We need to leave. Um, and his face, and then we said, but we're not going to take the bank accounts. And then he was like, oh, okay, more, co more coffee? Everything was, it was all good after that. When I was leaving, everyone left. I was the last person. I genuflected and kissed his ring. And exactly the reason I did that was to see, he knows very clearly that I don't believe that he is holding the faith. So what, was, what message was I sending him? The same as David and Saul. In fact, David later, King Saul begs one of David's guys to kill him. The poor guy does at Saul's request. I mean, Saul's request. He goes and tells David, and what does David do to the poor guy? Has him killed. Okay? Um, so I won't go that far if anyone... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so I... I don't know that she's ordained. Okay? If you want to go back in time to Frank Griswold, I, I can say yes, it applies to him with certainty. Um, would I follow his teaching? No, <laughs> I don't. But I would say yes, he is ordained. Um, just as you stop paying your taxes, you're still an American. You're just a bad one. <laughs> okay? Uh, but you're still an American. Yeah, there's still an anointing there. Yeah, and that's an important distinction. There is a difference between morals and ethics, however, but that's a whole other lecture. Okay, so, so we're back here now uh, to the undivided church, and um, uh, we know what held that church together. Um, I do want to speak uh, quickly on the ecumenical councils. Um, Here, here is the order of the five patriarchates, Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Alexandria, and Jerusalem. Um, what happened was, is that, as you know, the unity of the church was held in those four things. There was one canon of scripture, one sacramental life, one apostolic ministry, one faith. But uh, heretics uh, arose in the church. We have an example of one here. Uh, this is Arius, <laughs> who believed in cookies. Um, 
Um, and as the early church was not interested in defining things in any exhaustive way, okay, they did not. They were very comfortable, unlike ourselves. They were very comfortable with mystery. They would only define things when they were forced to because people were beginning to step outside of the norm. So they did not feel that it was necessary to they did not feel it was necessary to explain how the child in Bethlehem could, on one hand, be sustaining the entire universe, be the one through whom all things were made and apart from whom nothing was made that was made, be the one through whom his mother and foster father were conceived in the wombs of their mothers, or the beasts of the field, and yet simultaneously be absolutely uh, dependent upon his mother and foster father for love, for nurture, for nourishment, and for protection. They were not interested in trying to define how that could be. What they were interested in was that through the fellowship of the church, through the proclamation of the word, and through the sacramental life of the church, they could partake in the life of him who was both fully God and fully man. Is everyone with me? So they weren't interested in exhaustive definitions. They were interested in partaking in the life. So it would be like my saying to Christine 10 years ago, this year will be our 10th anniversary, um, I would like to spend the rest of my life Attempting to comprehend you. Um, rather, I'd like to spend the rest of my life sharing my life with you. Right? That was the patristic mind. They wanted to share in the life of God. <clears throat> they did not try to understand how God could be one and yet three distinct persons, but that again through the fellowship of the church, through the proclamation of the word, through the sacraments, they could share in the Holy Trinity. <clears throat> so there was no clear definition of apostolic succession. It was simply the practice of the church. There was no clear, uh, elaborate doctrine of the Holy Trinity or the person of Christ or an exact number of sacraments or even a list of the Bible until persons began to go too far in questioning what was the essence of the faith. When that would, would happen, there was a need then to address it. But how did they address it? They addressed it as the body of Christ. <laughs> In the early church, there was two schools of Christology. 
Alexandria, which tended to emphasize the divinity of Jesus. And Antioch, the other school of Christology, which tended to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. Sometimes they would go a little too far in that direction, and they would emphasize the Antioch, the school in Antioch, the humanity of Jesus at the expense of his divinity. Vice versa in Alexandria. But these two schools of thought really maintained a very effective balance for the church regarding Christology, that Christ is both fully God and fully man. In one sense, he was before time. In another sense, he needed nourishment. I'm really divine. I just do that so you think I'm human. Okay. Um, ironically, a presbyter, a priest in Alexandria, who you think would be emphasizing the divinity of Jesus, actually emphasized the creatureness. Creatureliness? Creatureliness. Yeah, creaturely. Creaturehood? Creatureliness of Jesus. His name was Arius, and he taught that the Christ was a being who is superior to all other parts of creation. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than man. He is greater than the sum of the universe. But he's inferior to God. He was created by God as an eight, as so he's a creature, part of creation. We are creatures in that sense. He was a creature, part of the created order, but superior to all other parts of creation but inferior to God himself. God is a gift, created him and gave him a like substance of his own. So compared to us, he is divine. But to, compared to God, he is a creature. So if you're looking from our angle, he seems divine. But if you're God, you realize he was a creature. He was of like substance, not of the same substance as the Father. Arius taught that a long, 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 long time ago, before the creation of anything else, God created the Christ, whom he called his Son. But that prior to that time, the Christ did not exist. So he had a saying, there was a time when Christ did not exist a long time ago. So he's superior to all creation, but inferior to God. He is the agent of God through whom God.
God brings into being all other parts of creation. Everyone with me so far? Okay. Well, the church wasn't too worried about Arius. People had thrown out theories before. The problem was is that Arius began to develop a following. That caused the problem, including among some of the uh, higher-ranking royal people, like the emperor. Which emperor was that? Well, later. It was later, anyway. But Later than what? Later than that emperor when he was there. But there were emperors who later adopted Arianism. Oh, okay. And so, it began to spread. And people believed that Jesus was a creature like us who had become man at a certain point to be an agent of God to bring about salvation, but he was not God, at least not in the way that God the Father is God. He's not eternal. eternal. No, he's not eternal. There was a time when he was not. Okay. He's not eternal. He was created. He's of like substance, but not of the same substance as the Father. Okay. They based their argument on Scripture, by the way. Arianism began to grow. And... It began to divide Christians. Now, at this point, Christianity moved from being a persecuted religion to the religion of the empire because the emperor, Constantine, was converted. So, it became so controversial that they had to call a council of the church to deal with Arianism. Now, where would they have gotten this model of dealing with such a big issue in a council? Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem. In the Bible they are dealing with a very big subject. That is, there were some who said that for Gentiles, non-Jews, to be saved, they had to first become Jews and enter into the covenant before they could accept the Messiah of the Jews. Seems somewhat rational, the problem is, it's, it's not what God revealed. What God revealed is that all could come into the covenant by faith through baptism, whether Gentile or Jew. Deacon Susie, were you going to say something? Okay. Um, and so the council was called in Jerusalem. Who presided at that council? By the way, Peter was there, chief of the apostles. 
James presided at that council. Why? He was the bishop of Jerusalem. Well, which James was this? Which apostle? Yeah, James the Just, Bishop of Jerusalem, not one of the twelve. Even though some of the apostles are there, James actually presides at the council. Peter, carrying a great moral influence, speaks at that council and speaks at length at that council. But James presides at that council, and it's James who writes the letter on behalf of that council to the church all recorded in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15. So following the example of the Jerusalem Council, they call the Council of the Church to deal with Arius. In what city do they hold this council? Nicaea. What year? 325. 325. Okay. So in the year 325, a council is called in Nicaea. All the bishops of the church either come or send representatives to the council. Both sides are heard and is decreed by the council that what Arius is teaching is contrary to the faith of the church. And what the church has always believed, what is revealed in Holy Scripture, what was believed by the apostles and the early church fathers, etc., etc. And so they make a statement. They decree a statement. Statement starts off, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things, visible and invisible. Sound familiar? And it goes on to say that Jesus is of what substance with the Father? One substance, the same substance with the Father. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, but not made. Okay, one in being with the Father. So one essence with the Father. Arianism was condemned. Now there was two levels of this council. The first level was the faith decree. That was sent out into all the world and once received by the whole church as being the faith of the church in every age of the church, it would be considered irreversible. The other part of it was called the disciplinary decrees. They were the canons of the church. While they are all to be taken very seriously and not simply dismissed, they are considered changeable depending on circumstances. Okay? Sometimes people think that a, a disciplinary decree of a council is of the same authority as, a, as the doctrinal decree. And that is not true. They are very different. Okay? However, they shouldn't be dismissed lightly either. All right. Um, Arianism was condemned. Um, 
Arianism began to die out for a while, but then it began to raise its head again. There were persons who were also calling into question now not the divinity of Jesus, but the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so uh, the church needed to address this. God raised up within the church um, in an area called Cappadocia three great bishops and theologians who articulated fully the faith of the church going back to Christ and the apostles. How the church has interpreted the God of the Holy Scripture. And they gave us really our understanding as far as how it was articulated of the Holy Trinity as we have it today. It is not true that they created the doctrine of the Trinity. They rightly articulated in a fuller way the faith of the church in every age of the church. Does everyone understand the difference there? Okay. Yes? Okay. All right. How about you, Chris? Are you going to give me some dirty looks or is that? Okay, good. I'm just teasing you. Um, there was three of them. The greatest of them should be known to you. His name is Gregory of Nyssa. <sighs> and the fans go wild. Okay. They are known as the Cappadocian Fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, his brother, St. Basil of Caesarea, also known as, Greg uh, as Basil the Great, and then Gregory of Nazianzus, also known as Gregory the Theologian. Uh, these uh, three are known as the Cappadocian Fathers and the Three Pillars of the Church, a name that uh, was given to Gregory at the Second Great Council of the Church, which finished the Nicene Creed. It, re it ratified the Nicene Creed from Nicaea, which ended with, and we believe in the Holy Ghost. And they finished that to... to um, uh, the rest of it based on the theology of the Cappadocian Fathers. We believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, period, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Why? Because he is God. God. <laughs> That's what you give a break for people to eat and they go, right? Because he is God, he has spoken through the prophets, etc., etc. The rest of what we know as the Nicene Creed came from the second council. So the first council was in Nicaea, uh, AEA, I think. That was in 325. Constantinople in 381. It also had disciplinary decrees. Not to be dismissed lightly, but not considered of the same authority as the doctrinal decrees. Okay? All right. Then there was the third council. This was held in Ephesus. And it was held in three, I'm mean, sorry, 431. And basically what happened was there was a group of Christians led by a man named Nestorius who said that 
uh, while we believe in the Incarnation, we believe in the Nicene Creed, okay, Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, that, um, that, that just means you left a message. That God, I mean, that Mary bore the Christ, okay, the human part of Jesus, but not the divine part of Jesus. And, and, and the church said, well, this is a problem for a couple of reasons. Because God entered the world through the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are one, they are one person. That's good. The two natures. Jesus is one person in two natures, fully God, fully man, right? So God in the person of Jesus entered the world through the Blessed Virgin Mary. So she did bear God incarnate, God in the flesh. You can't say she only bore the humanity of Jesus. Also, Elizabeth, when Mary comes to her, when she was pregnant, says, who am I that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Okay. Um, this was held in 431, and they proclaimed um, Mary to be Theotokos, that is, the God-bearer that she bore God incarnate. Now, obviously, God, the Holy Trinity, has no beginning and is born of no one. But God incarnate, God become man, was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary. To rightly understand the term Theotokos, loosely translated in English as Mother of God, which is a little bit confusing. God-bearer, I think, is, is a little bit better than Mother of God because it, it can be confusing, right? Um, but to rightly understand it, don't think of it as a Marian statement. It's a Christological statement. Mary being the Theotokos is a statement about Christ, that God himself entered the world through the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay? So Ephesus is not about Mary. It's about right belief, orthodox belief, right belief, regarding the person of Christ. Is everyone with me? So it's a Christological statement, not a Marian statement. The problem is, is that there is a very small group here that accepted the first and second council, but didn't accept the third council. Okay? They thought it was a distortion of the, the faith. Um, and they were considered to have removed themselves from the fellowship of the greater church. Okay. Um, this church today does exist. There's only about 10,000 of them left in the world, mostly under a great persecution right now in both Iran and Iraq. However, although they still will say they only hold to the first two councils, they fully believe that Mary bore God incarnate in the person of Jesus. So while they only recognize still today the, the first two councils, they do accept the theological principles of the third council. Okay? And they pretty much are non-existent today. Although they are suffering right now, presently, uh, in Iran. What's that? What's that? No, uh, I think that's the next group. Um, 
I, I get them confused because their names are similar. Um, You're being persecuted by the Iran Muslims. and yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. The next great council was in 481, and this is the Council of Chalcedon. By the way, this council, Ephesus in 431, ratified the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, which we commonly call the Nicene Creed, and said that there can never be any changes to the creed. The creed is the universal creed of the church, it's not that other things aren't believed, but that this creed rightly articulated for the whole church the faith in God, the Trinity, and the Incarnation. Okay? And so it ratified the, the creed. So, so far you got three councils, none of which had the filioque in it. Okay? Fourth council comes in 481. Um, there were those who denied that Jesus had a fully divine or fully human nature. There were some, particularly they called into question his human nature. They were saying that his humanity was absorbed into his div divinity, okay? And so, um, and you have to lesser to greater degrees what's called the monophysite heresy, okay? Some are pretty close to orthodoxy and just a little bit away, and others are very far from it, okay? This council um, said that there is one person of Jesus Christ in two natures. He's fully God and fully man apart from sin. The two natures are neither to be confused to the point where you lose the distinction of the natures, nor divided to the point where you lose the oneness of the person. While that sounds technical, it's actually meant to allow a great deal of breath within the mystery of the Incarnation. In other words, and I've done this before, you're welcome to dance anywhere in the ballroom, okay? As long as you don't dance outside the ballroom this way, because you'll then... Uh, divide the natures to the point where you lose the oneness of the person of Jesus. Nor are you allowed to dance in the hallway on this side of the ballroom because you will have confused the natures to the point where you lose their distinction. But within the ballroom, you are welcome to dance, okay, all over the ballroom, okay? And so what they said is you have to be somewhere in here you just can't be outside of that. Well, there was a group called the Oriental Orthodox, sometimes called the Non-Chalcedonian Orthodox, who were monophysites, um, uh, who did not accept the terminology of two natures. For them, the term nature implied person. So they believed that the council was decreeing that there was two persons, one divine, one human in the Christ. So they rejected that council. They were recognized as having separated themselves from the majority of the church. They still exist today. An example of them would be the Orthodox Church, known as the Coptic Orthodox Church in Egypt, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, and a few other smaller bodies.
They still officially only recognize the first three councils, but have come to accept the theological implications of all seven councils. Okay? Um, they fully believe that there is one person who is fully God and fully man apart from sin. They are very small, but really, if they were heretical at any time, because some argue that it was a matter of semantics. Others say, no, for some Monophysites it was semantics. Some were outright heretical, emphasizing the divinity of Jesus at the expense of his humanity. Regardless of whether they were once upon a time heretical, it seems that they have come full circle and have received the fullness of the Catholic faith received by the whole church east and west. Okay? So that's really an example of God over time working that issue out. Okay? Um, in, in fact, um, the Eastern Orthodox Church proper and the Oriental Orthodox Church um, have both decreed that um, there is no real division in theology between them anymore. Okay? Um, and so that's good. All right. Now, these four councils are within the first 500 years of the church. Since the time of the English Reformation, Anglicans have tended to emphasize these first four as being uh, the most authoritative among the ecumenical councils. Why? Because they see them as having dealt with the theology of the Trinity and the Incarnation. They see the latter three really as footnotes or a working out of the theology of the first four. So Anglicans tend to have a hierarchy within the seven councils with a great emphasis on the first four and seeing the latter three as a working out of the theology of the first four in the seven. Okay. Because of shortness of time, you have five, which was Constantinople two, six, which was Constantinople three, and the seventh council in 787 was Nicaea II. And the theology that carried the day there was that of a, a priest theologian known as John of Damascus or John Damascene. John of Damascus, the great defender of icons upon whose feast, December 4th, I was priested. I still remember Bishop Harvey. I gave him a gift of an icon. He said, thank you. He says, you're so into these things. You drive me crazy. The east is the east. The west is the west. Well, actually, sir, be quiet. <laughs> so he says, I'm going to ordain you. I've chosen a day, December 4th. You have? Why? I said, that's the feast of St. John of Damascus, the great defender of, or, uh, of icons. Of course it is, he said. <laughs> In the procession, by the way, we had icons carried down in the procession and everything, so it was kind of cool. But anyway, that was in 787. What were five and six? I'm sorry. Constantinople two, Constantinople three. And what were the dates of 
those are the only two I don't know off the top of my head, but I have them right here. Um, Constantinople II was in 553, and Constantinople III was in 680. And that clarified that Jesus has two wills, fully God of divine will and a fully human will. But that the human will uh, was uh, subservient to the divine will, always because it was in perfect relationship with the divine will. Um, all of these reaffirm the Nicene Creed as it was originally. Not a single ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, East and West, ever knew or proclaimed a creed with the filioque in it. It also was decreed that this is the faith of the whole church. All right, and so if you want to proclaim the creed, the Catholic creed of the whole church, you may theologically agree with the filioque. You'd be wrong, but that's a whole other matter. Um, there are people smarter than I who believe in the filioque theologically. Um, they're still wrong, even though they're smarter than I. But um, uh, that's a whole secondary issue. However, whether it's correct or not, but whether it's correct or not, there's no argument that I can see whatsoever that it can be added to the creed. How do you get added? Well, that's a good question. And why is it in our prayer book? <laughs> well, that's a good question, too. In... In the 500s in Toledo, Spain, not Toledo, Ohio, 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 um, in Toledo, Spain, there was an uprising of Arianism who were denouncing the full divinity of Jesus. With good intentions, this local council of Toledo, not an ecumenical council, it was a local council trying to put up a local uprising of Arianism, wanted to say, look, the Son is God exactly as the Father is God. So with good intentions, they proclaim that the Spirit, since the Spirit proceeds from the Father, He has to proceed from the Son as well, because they want the Son to be identical to the Father. The problem is, is that going against the writings of the Cappadocian Fathers, you cannot, you, in the Trinity, you have the oneness of God in being, and then you have the distinction of the persons. The persons can either be confused to the point where you lose the distinction of the persons, nor divided to the point where you lose the oneness of the Godhead and end up with three gods. Okay? The distinction of the Father is that he is the sole source and fountain of the Godhead. So if there's a dual source in the Godhead, then the Father has lost his distinction. But... They didn't realize this, and with good intention, they were trying to protect the divinity of Jesus against this uprising of Arians. So they decreed this in this local council in Toledo, Spain, over here. It started to gain rise in that area as a battle cry against Arianism, filioque, and the Son, meaning that this, what's what you can attribute to the Father, you can attribute to the Son. 
So it became a rallying cry against Arianism, and it started to spread. Interestingly, uh, there were subsequent ecumenical councils that never proclaimed the filioque in it. They ratified the creed exactly as it had been. Okay, um, This was the creed of the church. Interestingly also, as it started to spread uh, and have acceptance in the Western church, it was the Bishop of Rome who said, no way. You cannot change the creed. The creed is Catholic by nature. Therefore, it belongs to the whole church. Therefore, one part of the church cannot unilaterally change the creed of the whole. Yes? When was Toledo doing that? 500s. And as you see, there were subsequent ecumenical councils that proclaimed it without it. And so it was the Pope who said, no way. Interestingly, it became such an issue in the Western Church, not in the Eastern Church, it became such an issue in the Western Church that the Pope, to make it clear that the creed had to be left alone, had the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed chiseled into silver tablets and placed in St. Peter's Basilica where they still are today without the filioque. And so it was the Pope who condemned the filioque. Later on, we're jumping ahead now, there's a civil war in the Roman Empire. You have the Holy Roman Empire of Charlemagne, and you have Byzantium in the east. You have two emperors, Charlemagne, who would have been over here? The other guy. The way Charlemagne would have liked history to remember it. <laughs> Knowing that this was a big issue, the papacy was under the control of the Holy Roman Emperor, who had seized the Pope, literally. He had the Pope decree that the Nicene Creed shall be proclaimed from now on with the addition of the Filioque. Was it was. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. This is Charlemagne, so much later. That was just to stick it to the Eastern Emperor and the Eastern Church and to say, we have the authority to say what's Catholic and what's not. Okay? And that's how it got into it. Now, 400 years later, the English Reformation's happening. This is the only creed they've known for hundreds of years is a creed with a filioque in it. Okay? And so that's how the Filioque ended up in ours, with subsequent scholarship, dialogue with the East, based on the principle of the English Reformation to return the Catholic Church in the realm of England to the faith and order of the undivided Church under the authority of Scripture. There is now a movement to do away with the Filioque within the Creed. Okay. Um, so that's how that happened. Um, A split begins to happen between East and West, okay? It begins because of cultural differences, okay? In the West, they developed what language over time? Latin. It used to be the vulgar language, but it eventually became the language of the educated. In the East, they spoke what? Greek. Greek. 
in the West, following their culture, moved from Hellenistic culture to a Roman society and culture, and it tended to be very uh, legalistic in, in judicial. Is everyone with me in that? The Western church began to follow suit and to be very legal-oriented and very judicial. The East tended to be much more mystical in its theology. The West wanted to define everything. The East was still comfortable with mystery, only defining things when it had to be. On my moral authority, I'm telling you to get out. God bless you. Good to have you here, Joe. No, 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 no problem. Following this, hierarchy in the West becomes very top-down, okay? And implies now what? Inequality. The East contained to, uh, maintained a very conciliar, I don't know if that's how you spell it, but conciliar understanding of hierarchy. All bishops are equal and have equal authority. Some have an honorary authority that's greater than others, right? A moral authority, right? Um, yeah, now I can say it. Uh, um, Right? But they, but they tended to be conciliar. The West started to, go, to lean more towards decrees from the papacy, where the East considered to hold to the council model. Okay? Um, so you started to have real differences. They were speaking Latin, they were speaking Greek. At times, translations were a real problem. They were moving in the West in a more legal, judicial model. They maintained a more mystical model. Their hierarchy became very top-down and implied inequality. Okay? They continued to hold a more conciliar model of hierarchy, that hierarchy and order does not necessarily deem inequality. Okay, decrees from the Bishop of Rome holding on to that model of council. Okay, so tensions begin to arise. Also in the West, slowly after, out of time, the Bishop of Rome starts to claim a jurisdiction in a larger and larger area in the West. Not just an honorary authority, but actual jurisdiction over other bishops. Not only other, over other bishops, but over other princedoms and kingdoms as well. Okay. Still not claiming any jurisdiction over the East. Okay. Um, this continues to grow and to grow and to grow. Now, in the East, when this happened a couple of times with the Patriarch in Constantinople, who was there to call him into check? What's that? All the other bishops. All the other bishops. Right. 
Who's in the West to call the Bishop of Rome into check? Right, we have a bunch of monks. You can't do that. I'll cut off your heads. You can do that. Um, and so, a real difference. There were times when there were splits before 1054, okay? Um, and uh, what happened was, is that from really around 800 on, you have a real growing split in the undivided church east and west, okay? Latin, Greek, legal and judicial, mystical. Over here, another thing too, they saw Jesus as the dreaded judge. Over here, divine physician, okay? Because he's judge over here, people became so afraid of Jesus as the judge that they needed a mediator between them and Jesus. And so the saints moved from being prayer partners before the throne of God to mediators who will appease the judge. Well, here, he's a divine physician, okay? The saints are really your prayer partners. Over here, they're your mediators, okay? Jesus is judge. Jesus is divine physician. Latin, Greek. Top-down hierarchy, conciliar hierarchy. It's of interest only that in medicine, all medical terms are in Greek, but all of the prescriptions and rules were written in Latin. So you have the judiciary part of it in Latin. Awesome. That's fantastic. That's perfect analogy. That is a perfect analogy right there. That's really insightful. Thank you for sharing that. That's worth writing down. And next class, I won't have Bob here, and I'll say, as I've known all my life. What's that? In, uh, in medicine, all the titles for... The terminology for diseases and so forth is in Greek. Yes, in other words, when, the medicinal when part is Greek. In Greek. Yes, but all the rules about it are written in Latin. That's, that is cool. That, that, and the, see, I'm not making this stuff up. No. See? And one Wow. Because we really do speak in Greek. In Greek. Yes, we really do. Interesting. So Very. If you were a Roman Catholic and you're giving this history, how would you justify what, what Rome did? You know, it's interesting. This is why I had you read the faith and history of the undivided church from an Eastern Orthodox perspective, because all our textbooks in school, when you're growing up, 
will say that in 1054, the Orthodox Church broke away from Rome. You know? I mean, it's just amazing. And then subsequently, Henry VIII broke away from Rome. And even in Protestant schools, they don't realize this makes Rome the church and the measuring stick that people have broken away from. Um, some scholars, very honest, have said, um, Timothy Luke Johnson or Luke Timothy Johnson? Luke Timothy. Luke Timothy Johnson, Roman Catholic scholar, has said that Rome must return to the seven ecumenical councils as being ecumenical and return to the faith and order of the undivided Catholic Church and then move forward with the Eastern Church in debating everything else. I'm right with them. I'm right with them on that. Um, okay. Um, on July 16th, 1054, um, just prior to that, the Patriarch of Constantinople died. They had a local synod of the bishops and elected a new one who was then appointed by the Emperor Michael. The Pope in Rome said, I will be appointing the new Patriarch of Constantinople. To which the East said, since when? <laughs> That's never been done. You can't do that. To which the Pope answered, I can because I have jurisdiction over the whole church. The Pope claimed to have jurisdiction not only over his diocese, not only over the whole Western church, but for the first time claimed jurisdiction over the whole church East and West. Never had it historically. The East said, you do not have jurisdiction over the whole church. You cannot appoint the Patriarch of Constantinople. In the East, they continued to do what they were doing. And uh, Michael uh, was appointed the Patriarch of Constantinople uh, by the Synod and the Emperor. Rome sent a, a, a rider by horseback, I believe he was a cardinal, to Constantinople, who walked right into the midst of the Mass, what they would call Divine Liturgy, at the Church of the Holy Wisdom in Constantinople, um, and went up and slapped a papal bull of excommunication of the patriarch, Michael, on the altar, saying that Michael and anyone who remains loyal to him is excommunicated from the church. Okay. Uh, to which uh, the, the writer then said, who I believe was a cardinal, said, let God judge, let God, no, let God see and let God judge. Michael, the new patriarch of Constantinople, didn't remove from his seat, simply says, said, God has indeed seen, God has indeed judged. A deacon took the bull, good term, I think, and went running after him, begging him to rescind it, but he refused to rescind it. Michael then declared that the Pope had overridden his authority by claiming jurisdiction over the whole church, by breaking the 
um, conciliar model of the church by adding the filioque to the creed in the West, which by that time had been done. And so Michael said, we recognize that the Pope and all those in communion with him are excommunicated. So the entire church, East and West, has now excommunicated itself. Here endeth the undivided church. This line becomes permanent and has not been healed to this very day. The East says, you're claiming jurisdiction you don't have, you're claiming authority you don't have, you've added to the Catholic faith, therefore you're not Catholic, you're definitely not Orthodox. We are the ones who hold to the Orthodox Catholic faith. That is the right belief and right worship. Right worship, we haven't added the filioque to the creed, and right faith that we hold to the faith of the undivided church. So they call themselves the Orthodox Catholic Church. The Western Church said, no, we are the true Catholic Church. Um, we do have this authority. And the Catholic Church is now under the authority and jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome. And therefore is known as the Roman Catholic Church. Meanwhile, Jesus is weeping. Mm -hmm. Of course, he's an Anglican, but, you know. Um, and this brings the great, the great split. Subsequently, Eastern Orthodoxy continues to hold to the canon of Scripture of the undivided church, to the sacramental life of the undivided church, to the uh, faith of the undivided church, particularly as expressed in the Nicene Creed in its original form, and the seven ecumenical councils accepted by the whole church east and west. Um, and they continue to hold to the apostolic ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the apostles. Rome has continued to do those things, but has added other things. One claims to papal jurisdiction over the whole church. Uh, number two, much later, claims of papal infallibility, that the Pope can speak infallibly on behalf of the church. Number three, and these are all out of order historically, purgatory. Number four, transubstantiation as a philosophical means to explain the mystery of Christ's presence in the Eucharist based on Thomistic theology, which is based on Aristotelian philosophy, okay? Um, uh, let's see, uh, later indulgences, um, and then subsequently, 14 more councils that they call ecumenical councils of the whole church that have never been received by the whole church. They're ecumenical because they say that they're the whole church, and they've received them. And thus you have the Roman Catholic faith and then the Eastern Orthodox Church, these two communions. Now, where does Anglicanism fit in all of this? Well, 
For the first seven and a half centuries, until 664 A.D., the Catholic Church in this realm was part of the whole Catholic Church throughout the world, but was not under the authority or jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome. Is everyone with me? In 664 A.D., they decided at the local synod of Whitby, presided over, by the way, by the abbess Hilda of Whitby, very Celtic, they decided to place themselves under the authority of the Bishop of Rome in order to bring themselves in line more so with the rest of Western Christianity. But for the first seven and a half centuries, the Catholic Church in the Celtic lands, in the land of what we would call Great Britain, was part of the whole Catholic Church, but was not under the authority or the growing authority of the Bishop of Rome. Even in 664, when they decided to do so, it still would take about another six centuries for the Bishop of Rome to solidify his authority over the Catholic Church in that realm. So really you're talking about the 1200s, the 13th century. Then within a couple of hundred years you have the English Reformation where they say, you know, look, we are returning to the faith and order of the undivided church and one of the things is that the bishop does not have authority or jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in this realm. Okay. Um, and the principle of the English Reformation, I would argue, is to return to the faith and order of the undivided Catholic Church, the faith and order of the undivided Catholic Church under the authority and primacy of Holy Scripture with a particular emphasis on the golden age of development, the age where the canon of Scripture emerges, the apostolic ministry emerges and solidifies, the creeds and the councils, etc. So the first 500 years, which is why there's an emphasis in Anglicanism on the first four councils, and the latter three are seen as a working out uh, of the theology of the first four. This is why, I would argue, we have much more in common with the Eastern Orthodox Church than we do with the Church in Rome. Okay, Because like them, we are a non-papal Catholicism. Our Catholicism is based on the faith and order of the undivided Church. Now, there's a matter of emphasis. They don't, they don't distinguish between any of the seven. We emphasize the first four. We have a hierarchy of truth within the seven. We tend to emphasize the two great sacraments, right, where they will emphasize life itself is more sacramental, okay? So there's matters of emphasis, but really we have far more in common, I would say in the very early era and since the English Reformation with the Orthodox Church than we do with Rome. <clears throat> That's why when people say to me, oh, you know, you probably want us to have communion with Rome. My interest really lies in dialogue. I have a, a, a second master's in Anglican Eastern Orthodox dialogue. This is where my interest lies. Why? Because um, I believe our true vocation is to be the undivided church or the Orthodox Church of the East in the West. Okay. Um, but this split, sadly 
And in the year 2000, on July, uh, July 1st, January 1st, I was in, in Peoria. And um, I was very good friends with Father Michael Kondos of the Greek Orthodox Church up the road. And he and I, our two congregations, would do adult education together twice a year, once at our church and once at their church. And then we would go to their Greek festival, and they wouldn't come to our picnic because it was hot dogs and beans, but, you know. Um, <clears throat> but we did a lot together, made statements together in the press, etc., etc. Um, on January 1st of the year 2000, we both had divine liturgy at midnight. My, me and my church, him and his church. And we both read a letter from one another to the other congregation, lamenting that here we are entering another millennium. And this rift that happened on July 16th, 1054, is yet to be healed. But this is also why I lament the unilateral decisions that we have made in the, in the last generation or so as Anglicans. Because one of the principles of Anglicanism <clears throat> is that we cannot add or subtract to the biblical Catholic faith. That's what made us distinguish from Roman Catholicism, which had added to it, and Protestantism, <clears throat> which had sometimes for good intentions, but sometimes as an accident of history, but had deleted from it. The principle of Anglicanism was to maintain the faith and order of the undivided church under Holy Scripture. Um, and I believe our true vocation is still to become the Orthodox Church in the West. Okay. Um, well, I hope so. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, no. Um, so anyway, uh, that's the seven councils. Uh, in that period of the undivided church, the canon of scripture emerges. What books are the Bible? The creeds, the seven councils, the sacramental life, the apostolic ministry, all of this emerges, particularly in the first five centuries, which is why Anglicanism puts a real emphasis on the first five centuries. Um, but um, I really believe in the vocation of Anglicanism. Um, unfortunately, I don't believe that a lot of Anglicans, including Orthodox Anglicans, know what the vocation of Anglicanism is. And um, uh, that may sound kind of haughty or cocky or whatever, but I believe it's much bigger than me in my opinion. I believe this is the principle of the English Reformation. And I believe it's our vocation, you know, by God. But we need, we need to be doing teaching. As I said to the staff today, uh, teaching, teaching, teaching. And then that should be followed by teaching. That's what we need, a lot of teaching. <laughs>